This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and thank you for downloading the Eye on Education podcast from the 2nd of September. On the programme today, we asked how important is it that schools get involved with community charities and projects? We chatted to Tatiana Antonelli from Goombook, who are a sustainable living social responsibility company. We also spoke to Lizzie Varley from the school's company Cognita about why they've teamed up with the Sparkle Foundation. Plus, we discussed whether uniforms have got too expensive. Uh, we spoke to Matthew Benjamin, the founder and CEO of Sustainable uniforms company Capes and we also heard from a lot of people listening to the radio show all of whom were quite angry at the cost of uniforms and in our My Classroom feature we spoke to a teacher from a jungle school in Costa Rica where children share their playground with monkeys and toucans. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 8. We are going to turn our attention now to the role of schools in their community and the level to which teachers, parents and pupils should be getting involved. So over the next half hour or so, we're going to look at the various ways in which schools here in the UAE can engage with charitable organisations and we're going to ask why it's so important. First up, to set the scene, I'm joined by Tatiana Antonelli. Now, she's the founder and managing director at Goombook, who are a sustainable living social responsibility company here in the UAE. Tatiana, thanks for joining us on Teams. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very well indeed. Now, you've been working with schools for some time here, haven't you? Yes, we've been working with many schools in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Sharjah. And um, always, I mean, we started with tree planting, uh, raising awareness about the local environment, indigenous species, the importance of preserving water and topics such as water scarcity. But I have to say in the past years, things and topics have changed, they've evolved. And now in schools, we're able to talk about sustainable development, circular economy. So it's actually much more interesting and I think more engaging as well. Do the schools come to you or are you having to nudge them? How enthusiastic are schools to get into sort of community social development? Well, actually, I have to say schools are always looking out for um, people to engage with and help them support with uh, with content. And th- this is a very specific content, so they need experts for it. We've been very lucky in the past year because schools have come to us to um, have awareness sessions, to have events, tree planting sessions. Um, And nowadays they actually call us to see how they can embed sustainability within their curriculum. And are the kids always engaged? Now, I mean, this is a bit of a cheat question because I know my children have been involved with the tree planting and they absolutely loved it. Well, this is the the key. I think we need to look at uh, both education, but also activities and action because if we only give content and if we only tell children what they have to do it gets boring it's not attractive they don't see their role when instead you provide activities and hands-on initiatives then that's where they feel they have a role they understand more they learn through experience and it's the the outcome and the impact is totally different they get more passionate as well we have to remember that the more we talk about climate change and issues such as you know sustainability for children this is something that can become also very overwhelming i would say and there's a phenomenon that started already in 2017 which is called eco-anxiety in in youth and it starts from very young age where children are given a lot of information about, you know, plastic pollution and climate change and floods. And somehow at the beginning they might be interested, but when they don't see their role and when they don't see how they can act to to change things, it transforms into anxiety and feeling powerless. And so this is where the role of schools and and, uh, in general parents as well is to talk about these topics, but in a very positive way, empowering children uh, to, you know, learn about solutions and feeling that in the future, they will be able to have a career in these fields and in these uh, companies that provide solutions, provide products, uh, instead of just giving them 
gloomy information that is going to just depress them. And actually, here in Dubai, uh, there is a clinic that has already experienced different cases of eco-anxiety from teenagers uh, going to doctors and, and feeling really depressed because of all this information and not being able to engage or feeling there's a solution to it. So uh, along those lines, I know that you run a series of campaigns regularly throughout the year. What's your latest mission uh, to encourage kids and schools to get involved? So finally, after many years, we've uh, decided to launch an after-school program for students aged 14 to 18 to learn about sustainability, but also to learn about the solutions. These after-school activity will be uh, two hours sessions. The first hour will be about learning what sustainable development is, what circular economy is, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. But the second hour will be hands-on. We want them to meet with the change makers. We want them to meet with the startups and the entrepreneurs that are bringing solutions and products to the UAE, to the region, to face um, you know, challenges such as water scarcity, um, the energy or food security. And so we want them to feel that they can be part of the solution, that they can, you know, build already their career from now for, for a better future and be part of the, of the ecosystem. And uh, this will also include field trips. We'll organize also yearly trips abroad of the UAE for them to experience, uh, for example, coral restoration projects or mangrove restoration, as well as visiting uh, villages in countries in Africa to build um, solar pumps and solar wells and provide water. Uh, they need to understand that this is happening and, and it's impactful and it's positive. Fantastic to speak to you and amazing to hear about how that uh, how you're taking proactive action to help uh, children there who are struggling with eco-anxiety and to encourage them to learn more about what they can do uh, to help the climate. Tatiana Antonelli, the founder and managing partner uh, at Goombook. If you want to find out more, just go to the website. It's G-O-U-M-Book, B-O-O-K dot com. So check that out. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome to the programme. It's lovely to have you with us. And over the next half hour or so, we're going to look at the various ways in which schools here in the UAE can engage with charitable organisations. And we're going to ask why it's so important. Uh, We are continuing our conversation about the role of schools in their community. And of course, the level to which teachers, parents and pupils should get involved and of course how much they want to get involved. And I think that's what's going to be so interesting about this conversation is because I think there is a real sense of enthusiasm here in the UAE uh, among the sort of t- the sort of educational community to get involved in these uh, CSR type projects. Now I'm joined in the studio by two guests in the studio live and humans and in the studio, still not over the, fact, over the fact that we can meet real people two years after COVID. Uh, I am joined by Sarah Brooke, who is the CEO and founder of the Sparkle Foundation, and Lizzie Varley, who is Cognita Middle East Education Advisor. Uh, she focuses on safeguarding, inclusion and well-being, a key word there, across uh, the family of Cognita schools in the Middle East. Welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Um, so one of the reasons why we have both of you in with us at the moment is because Cognita, which is a really big schools group. Uh, It might be not one that you might have heard of, but it's a really big schools group. And they've partnered with the Sparkle Foundation on this new initiative, uh, basically, which is to help a grassroots charity to improve the lives of vulnerable children and families in Malawi, specifically. Sarah, now you've been running the Sparkle Foundation for a few years now. Can you tell me a little bit about the work you do? Uh, And then we'll talk about how Cognita have have teamed up with you and why they've teamed up with you. I'm sure it's a very good project, but we'll we'll ask it nevertheless. Absolutely. Um, I think best to start with why Malawi, because most people think, um, where is that? I quite literally at 18 pointed at a map and my finger landed on Malawi. So I said to my parents at the time, I'm off to volunteer. And I think probably one of the links with the schools now is I can put myself in the shoes of a lot of children to think, I remember I really wanted to help as a child, but didn't know where to start. So I took it upon myself to do something. Anyway, I got to Malawi, volunteered for three months and unfortunately got a twist in my bowel from eating too much of the local food. 
long story short, was taken to hospital and they said they need to operate, but there was a 96% chance of HIV because there was no sterile equipment and only one doctor who said to my friend at the time, um, never done the surgery before, but I can give it a go. Um, Whoa. I was <laughs> fortunately <laughs> unconscious at the time and he said, right, what's the other choices? Go to a private hospital two hours away, but she might die before she gets there. Um, oh my goodness. So he was allowed to, quote, give it a go. Uh, No, they decided to go for the private hospital route, actually. Uh, One I'm very grateful for today. And I had the surgery, spent three and a half weeks there. And he came to visit and said, Sarah, when you're at the local hospital, maybe 300 people waiting in the queue to see that one doctor. And you were the doctor for two and a half hours. And they allowed you to be seen first, truthfully, because of the colour of your skin. And when you came out, some of the people in the queue who were children had died And it was just that moment that changed my entire life forever. And I was like, that's it. It should never be the case. I have to do something to help. So um, it started there at 19. I was then by that point, I was like, I want to make a difference to at least one child's life. Fast forward. uh, I'm showing my age now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, around 12 years. We're not counting. And um, we registered in the UK as a charity. And as of March this year, we reached 14,000 people. And obviously I came across Cognita. We just got our charity license here in the UAE, um, which has been a real struggle, but one I'm very grateful for um, to have now got it. And my big thing as a child myself at the time is that students really want to get involved and they want to make a difference. And when I came across Cognita and the values that they share, I was thinking this is a perfect match. This is a way that 18-year-olds like me don't have to go out and worry their poor parents um, and can do something structured and really make a difference. Okay, that is, I mean, what an extraordinary story and and what an amazing manifesto that you have for yourself and and, and for the work of the charity. Um, How do you do your work? Because it's one thing to have intention and it's another thing to have the money, but it's a third thing, as as I've learned through sort of various interviews I've done about charities, you know, it's about implementing those projects in a way that, that shows real fruit ultimately you know that bears fruit so what type of projects do you actually do in Malawi? Um, So we ran a school initially and truthfully it's failure that's got us to where we are today and it's really honestly saying we started as a school and by 10 o'clock realized that our children were falling asleep um, because they were hungry so then we brought in a feeding program and then unfortunately um, in Malawi with the health conditions we also realized we were losing on average a child a month from a preventable disease. So then we brought in our medical program. So we had health, nutrition and an education. And then the final part was in communities that we we're working with, the parents hadn't been educated themselves, unfortunately. And through one way or the other with farming, they weren't sending their children to school. So it's then about empowering them. So we then had our fourth sort of pillar, so to speak, to our model. Um, and that's where we are now. We have a day-to-day nursery school, primary after school program, youth group, women's group, adult literacy group, feeding program, on-site clinic, ambulance service. The list, honestly, is endless. But I honestly believe if you want to have a successful project, you need to look at a holistic approach, which is what Sparkle is. And it's now impacting communities across Malawi. So, Lizzie, I'm not surprised you got involved, (laughs) (laughs) to be honest. I mean, amazing to hear uh, what you've done and and, and the, the ecosystem that you've created there. Uh, I mean, Lizzie, what what is striking, obviously, is the success of of the Sparkle Foundation and the clear thought and rationale that goes into the project. And I imagine that must have been one of the reasons why you were attracted to the Sparkle Foundation, because ultimately Cognita Group could have chosen any charity to pair up with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think just obviously listening to Sarah's story just now, you can see how absolutely inspiring it is. And one of the purposes of of what we do is looking at the development of agency, adaptability and that making a positive difference. And I think Sarah embodies all of that in what she's done and is such a great role model for our children. Um, And also just the fact that it is an educational charity. It's something that the children can relate to. They, you know, they go to school and in Malawi, the children go to school. So it's a charity that everyone can understand especially working um, obviously within education with you know, having our teachers um, and it's it's really it's been um, a push for us to do something that will link and bind the whole community together it's something that we can all get involved with and work as a team to kind of support another community to thrive and it's all about doing that together but what's so interesting is about I, like the so so 
it, you can understand why an education group would want to team up with with a charity that has a, a school in Malawi because there's a sort of there's the do gooding element of it, but there's actually a bit more to it mm. than you. And the clue is actually in your title, in your yeah. job title, that word <laughs> wellness. Yeah. Um, and so, can you explain a bit why you decided? To, you know, what, how how you're hoping to sort of encourage your teachers' wellness and mental health with this project because it's not a ne- it's not completely linear that that journey no. is it no not at all and I think you know holistic education is the core of what we do and well-being plays a massive part of that and when you look at giving and generosity there's so much positive positiveness in terms of relieving stress um, and it's that opportunity to do something good and to make a difference and although we of course we chose Sparkle because of Sarah and because of how sparring that story is but it, it's a way that Sparkle Foundation will allow us kind of to weave that um, social purpose and responsibility into school life and it gives that really rich and motivational like learning experiences for the children and also um, thinking about global mindset we are so privileged where we are in Dubai and the children in within all of our schools and just opening their eyes up to the diversity of the world and how people are different how people are the same um and what children, I mean, at the end of the day, we want children to um, achieve academic excellence, but it's what they then decide to do with those academic accolades. You know, what do they choose to go and do when they get older and move out into the world? How can they make a positive positive difference to society, to the environment? Um, and that's, it's, it's such an important part of education. And so it links massively towards well-being because in terms of giving and that sense of feeling that satisfaction with what you do. I mean, there's loads of research to show how working with charities, giving, um, improves well-being. And that's for everyone. It's for the staff, it's for the parents and for the children. Really interesting, that that sort of element of it. I haven't realised that it would go so, so, it would be so deeply rooted. Uh, so in practical terms, how are you hoping to manifest this? Uh, so, I mean, from, from the point of view of the Sparkle Foundation, what, what new projects are you going to be able to implement thanks to the support of Cognita? Um, well, our plan obviously is to help as many children as possible in Malawi um, and then we're replicating into other areas across Africa. So um, we'll never go where there's not a need. So at the moment, it depends on the situation. But for me at the moment, fundamentally is to un- the children to understand the why um, so our big next piece is around the education um, I certainly feel a lot of children and mums especially approach me and say oh we want our children to really understand how lucky they are and be connected and it, it's difficult in Dubai um, but one of the benefits of Covid um, is that we became technologically technologically advanced so in Malawi we're all connected now so we can do things like shared lessons shared learnings uh, the modern day pen pal I guess if we want to look at it that way Um, and giving that connection between students and people in Malawi as Lizzie mentioned is really really strong because they understand the why and amongst their friends it can bring people together with purpose so our big push at the moment is making it part of the curriculum Um, looking at how we can weave sparkle into lessons, art classes, geography projects that are linked with where is even Malawi, what's the country known for. There's so many different ways, um, not only in the classroom but beyond it, um, that people can do things. So we're just seeing how that plays out really across all the schools. We are in the midst of discussing the work that Cognita is planning to do in partnership with the Sparkle Foundation in African countries such as Malawi. Now, it does feel, and I'm sure other school groups are doing this as well, but it does feel like as as an education group, Cognita are, are really trying to take the lead in sort of weaving this social responsibility into the fabric of the school's life. Now, how are you planning to do that, though? Because it's one thing to go, right, we're partnering with the Sparkle Foundation and you're all going to like it. Yeah. <laughs> but how, yeah. Do you, how do you do it? I think at the moment, um, as you've probably listened to Sarah there, we've had such an amount of enthusiasm from everyone that has kind of listened to this. We've got um, so many different ideas, but I think... Um, There's a number of ways that we're going to do that. We're going to look at fundraising uh, for the students from an individual perspective, from a class perspective, year group, across schools, across the community, um, looking at opportunities to work the school council to lead on events, um, looking at campaigning, um, what raising, how you raise awareness, looking at the importance of advocacy. Um, And then again with the staff, I mean, um, our staff are kind of so excited about all of this and there's so many ways they can get involved through giving their own time and supporting with training 
training. It's it's a it's a school, so they've got teachers that do do need training. We're, we're looking at um, going over to Malawi as a team, taking a team of teachers out there, and also using that kind of that in those inspired teachers and that expertise of them to kind of support the development of our cur- curriculum even further um, as we go in, into next year. So yeah, there's there are so many ideas at the moment, and mm. we're working very closely with Sarah to look at the best way to um, integrate it all together, it, like a whole school holistic approach. Yeah, yeah, you get a sense there of, of how it could really broaden people's horizons, not just of your teachers, but also of the parents and ultimately, you know, the pupils, which is what we what we worry about. But then in some ways, I suppose, as an education group, your responsibility is also towards your staff and making sure they feel good. No, absolutely. And I think that's that's really key when you when you look at well-being. At the end of the day, the staff, they're the role models for the children. And if they're living um, that life where, you know, they hold this really important to themselves and when they're teaching that to children, it's really genuine um, and it's infectious. So it's really important. Staff well-being is is absolutely key in schools. Um, it makes such a difference. So it's absolutely for the, the staff as well as the children and, and the parents as well. Really interesting. I mean, because whenever I think of a school, I have to be honest. I mostly just think about how my children interact with that school. But naturally, if you've got a a sad teacher, then then it's not going <laughs> to be a fun classroom, is it? Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, and that's one thing that we've really focused on. We have looked at staff wellbeing in a lot of detail, not just through giving, but through all aspects, diet, physical health, the opportunities to connect. Um, it's, it is vast, but when, when you focus on staff wellbeing, um, it's the staff flourish and then the children flourish. Mm. It's just a natural process. So. Now, I mean, Sarah, this must be awesome having Cognita teaming up with you. It's great to have a corporate, you know, teaming up with a charitable organisation. You must have a lot of experience in fundraising because I know how hard it is to raise money. Uh, And so what have you got planned over the next sort of few weeks and months in order to, to bring more into your coffers so that you can go out there and do this good work? Yeah, definitely. Fundraising is not an easy task. And certainly there's the legal requirements here in the UAE. Once we got the charity license, this will be our first event we're hosting on October the 7th here in Dubai. Um, We had our launch expo, which was just amazing in itself, a dream come true. Um, And now to hold our gala dinner um, on the 7th with all the people that have supported us um, since I started to see now where the charity is. And we're getting as many people involved from auction prizes to help raise the profile um, with the aim that we can really continue operations. We've seen what's happening in global crisis around the world and naturally those the most vulnerable are the ones that get affected most by things like this so we're doing all we can and Dubai is a great place to be and as I mentioned earlier it's really restored my faith in humanity the most amazing people in this country that I now get to call home that have come forward and our youngest ambassador of the charity is four years old so my genuine belief is that everyone can do something it's just about reaching out and we'll always find a way. Give me a few of your top lines of the successes that you've had in the last sort of few years, because I, you know, I don't think charities often get the, the opportunity to sort of big themselves up. But you, you mu- there must have been some milestones that you're like, we, yeah, we nailed that. We did that. I'll give one for Malawi, um, which definitely has been is replicating. We replicated our model in January this year. So that was opening up to 100 new children. That's taken us nearly six years um, to do that. And now to have reached that point that we're ready to scale Um, it's one of those things as anyone even any business that's franchising once you get sort of the model together almost in a booklet you can then go so we can just now expand wherever the need is which is a massive achievement for the team on the ground who've been with me really since I was 2021 so that was definitely in Malawi a big plus and I think registering here in Dubai (laughs) has definitely got to be a highlight Um, I got rejected three times just because the size of the charity and to keep fighting resilience and resilience resilience and yeah now to be able to meet the need of the people here that have said we just want to help how can we to be able to give people that opportunity and Sparkle is not just about Malawi this is a movement of people in the UAE who want to make a difference and I can't wait to see how far we can go and Cognita is hopefully just the start. Oh, this is so inspiring and exciting. Thank you so much for coming on the radio. I really appreciate it. It's a, um, that is a good Friday feeling interview. So thank you very much indeed to both of you for coming in. Uh, Sarah Brooke, you just heard there, a CEO and founder of the Sparkle Foundation and Lizzie Varley, uh, the Cognita Middle East Education Advisor. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 8. Now, one of the main topics of conversation in our house this week has been uniform. In fact... It's been the main cause of controversy. Ultimately, it comes down to this. My children don't want to wear the uniform they're meant to. And I really don't want to pay for it. And yet, both of us have to do both of those things. I mean, obviously, the kids have to wear the uniform. But I have to say, I really, really, really resent the amount of money that I have to pay on it. Spend How on much it. did you pay? I mean, I just, because I refuse to do it all in one go, because I've sort of, it's sort of passive resistance, sort of mild (laughs) rebellion. I don't really know because it's all in dribs and drabs. But this week, so I went in and bought a swimming hat because they both have swimming on the same day. So they can't share the swimming hat and a shirt. And that was, that was 400 dirhams. And then I, then my eldest son went and bought a tie because apparently in year five, you have to have a tie. That was 65 dirhams. That was two days ago. Today, my youngest son discovered year three now have to wear a tie. So that's another 65 dirhams. Should should a child's tie be 65 dirhams? It's a piece of viscous. It's just got the school badge on it. Why can't they just... Uh, fine, children should wear a tie to school. It's good, it's smart, it prepares them for the work workplace. But why can't it just be a plain blue tie that you can buy from a normal retailer for, I don't know, 10 dirhams? From anywhere, yeah. You're absolutely right because, you know, things like the hats that they've got to have the school's logo on it. And I tried to buy a swimming hat or a swimming cat at Decathlon and my daughter said, no, it'll be embarrassing. It doesn't have the school logo. Everyone else has the school logo. Yeah, and you get these really rich families and I've got nothing against the rich families. (laughs) They're fantastic. Thank you for coming to Dubai. Thank you for spending your money here. But they just go to the shop and just drop 6,000 dirhams and buy, they even buy the branded socks. Like, I'm not buying branded socks. They can wear grey socks and they can wear white socks. I'm not buying socks with the school's logo on them. It's ridiculous. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I can go on. I, I, was, <laughs> I, I mean, I can really get quite, quite, uh, can I just, uh, like, Zena's just a, the, don't do the, like, carry on thing to me. But no, no, I've got to just tell you about the difference between the rugby t-shirt and the football t-shirt. The two of them are identical, except for one small detail. Underneath the armpit, there is a seam a stripe running down underneath the armpit that for football is yellow and for rugby is white. And as a consequence, I have to spend 300 dirhams on another one because it's got the wrong stripe under the armpit. A child's rugby shirt is 300, 300 dirhams. 300 dirhams. And I've got two boys, so that's 600. 600, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it's an, it, it is... The more I think about it, the more I talk about it, and the more I am so joyful that I have this platform (laughs) to discuss it, it makes me furious. There's a cost of living crisis going on around the whole world at the moment. And they're making me spend 300 dirhams on a different T-shirt because it's got a white line versus a yellow line. I mean, yeah. I'm getting angry at just talking you about it. You are red in the face and we're on Facebook okay. Live so okay. everyone can see you. Okay, I'll calm down. Uh, in a few minutes, we are going to be speaking to ba- Matthew Benjamin. He's the founder and CEO of Capes. Now, they are very keen on making uniforms that are based on sustainable materials. He does lots of uh, CSR with other schools as well. But people have been already getting in touch on this topic, haven't they, Z? Yes, yeah, so Luca is a dad of two and you won't believe how much he forks out to buy uniforms and stuff. We have two boys, 14, 15... We spend around uh, 4,000 dirhams a year, probably a little bit more. They don't use uh, their, bro- their elder brother's uniforms because, first of all, they don't last that long. Second thing is because they are spoiled. It is a relevant expense above and beyond the gigantic school fees. Yeah, that's Luca. Now, Annika has three kids in school this year. She spent thousands on uniforms, too. We've easily spent more than 2,000 dirhams on everything they needed. We do try and reuse as much as we can, though, of things like backpacks, lunchboxes, uh, stationery, anything that's in good condition and can be reused does get reused from a sustainability aspect as much as a financial one. Our school does have a good WhatsApp group where parents will pass along or sell uh, uniforms which are still in good condition. That's good. At least there is a second-hand shop. Exactly, yeah, and the, the parents' WhatsApp group. At least they're useful. Now, Amira has two kids in school, and she says she only buys brand new. 
they are overpriced, especially that you need to buy more than one set. I wash the school uniform every day, so I need at least for each child two sets. And with every day washing, the color fades by end of the academic year. And that with a new set of uniforms. So imagine if I buy it used. I do prefer to get it new, so at least it lasts for a good nine months. A message to the shops who sell the school uniform, they really need to relook into their prices. A lot of people suffer to pay their kids' school fees, so it's really important to support the community as well. That's a big question there, the quality of the uniform. My children find the shirts really scratchy. So, I mean, why am I spending a fortune on a shirt with a badge that then scratches my child? I mean, why can't we just go to one of the standard retailers and they just wear a plain white shirt? I know some parents that have done that, right? You've spotted a parent on TikTok. Yeah, uh, one of the parents, actually, she... uh, I mean, she's on TikTok. We can say it's Camilla. Can't we? Yeah. Like, um, she it, it's public. She um, she actually managed to get her the uniform copied. She went to a to a local tailor in in Dera and or Karama, and they copied the uniform quite happily. Nothing wrong with that. Not not a lot of us will have the time and you know, uh, the creativity to come up with these other ideas, alternatives. But uh, good on you, Camilla. Yeah, good on you. Okay, we are going to continue this conversation. There's so many messages coming in from people. We've definitely touched a nerve. I'm pleased. I'm pleased. I'm not the only one raging against the machine because uh, I really do feel very angry about this. We are going to be speaking to uh, Benjamin uh, Matthew Benjamin. Now he's the founder and CEO of Capes. They make uniforms based on sustainable materials. He's going to give us a little bit of a background. Uh, He also uh, does amazing corporate social responsibility projects involving uniforms, uh, where he helps to clothe uh, children at schools in Africa as well. So I'm really interested to find out about his work. We have definitely touched a uniform nerve in the community. Uh, So many messages coming in. Uh, But we are going to go to those in just a minute. Uh, But first up, can we I'm going to I'm going to get Benjamin, sorry, Matthew Benjamin to join us on the line. He is the founder and CEO of Capes. Now they make uniforms based on sustainable materials. He's been waiting very patiently on Microsoft Teams to join this conversation while I ranted and raved about the cost of the uniform at my school. Matthew, how are you? I'm very good, thanks, Georgia. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Now, um, we, are, we are drawing on your expertise because you really do understand the uniform market, don't you? Yeah. Uh, t- tell, me, yeah. tell me why they're so expensive and, and, and why they're so scratchy. Okay. Um, well, they're scratchy because they're typically made of synthetic fibers like polyester or nylon. Um, so that's why they're scratchy. They're not natural materials. Um, at best, it's going to be a, a mix of conventional cotton and, and polyester. Um, why they're so expensive is interesting, right? Because um, if you take, and this morning I was speaking to a, a material supplier in preparation for this call just to find out, well, how much is is uh, polyester at the moment and conventional cotton versus organic cotton, which is what we use. And uh, a poly cotton is about 40% less than an organic cotton. Uh, a 100% synthetic like polyester is about 55 to 65% less than organic cotton. Yet when we compare our organic cotton prices to some of the suppliers in the UAE, their pricing is higher. So then it's okay, well, hold on. So the, the product is about 65% less to, to make. And that's if all things are equal on the, on the manufacturing side, which they're not. Um, yet the pricing is higher or, or, or the same in some cases. Why? Because uh, suppliers have exclusive contracts, um, three-year contracts, five-year contracts in some cases. Um, there's no incentive for them to reduce pricing because of that. In some cases, schools also benefit from the sale of uniforms. Um, And it's been like this for decades. So the unfortunate thing is that pricing is not going to change. If anything, it will probably go up because of inflation. Um, And I think what we really should be focusing on is if we're going to pay this much for uniforms, then we should be getting more out of them in terms of the quality and the sustainability of it. And... I am absolutely furious to hear that the schools might be benefiting from the sale of yeah. the uniform. Uh, that that is uh, that sounds that feels like profiteering to me, especially when 
they're they're making demands such as you know you need one t-shirt for football and one t-shirt for rugby and there's this tiny little difference that makes me really yeah. fuming yeah i'm sure that um you know i won't be thanked for saying this but a lot of schools do have a revenue share in place and you know get revenue from the sale of uniforms um so again from that perspective there isn't an incentive for suppliers um, or schools to really reduce the, the cost of uniforms. Um, that said, I don't believe that uh, most schools, the large majority of, majority of schools, realise that the actual cost of making the product is significantly less and the margins that are being applied are just unrealistically, artificially high. Now, you're hoping to shake this up with CAPES. Tell me a bit about your work with schools, both here and abroad. Sure. So um, so for us, it starts with the raw material. Like, How can we make um, that as sustainable as possible, which is why we use organic cotton. Uh, and in some cases, when it comes to sportswear, recycled polyester. But I will say also that even for us, I do not believe that recycled polyester is the answer. It's not a long term solution. Because just like a, just like virgin polyester or virgin synthetics, it still releases microplastics into the atmosphere. Um, they're still uh, inhaled by by children that are wearing them, um, so they have health implications as well. So I just want to sort of yeah make a note of that that even for us, I don't feel that there's enough being done, and we're now looking into how can we use or how can we develop even more sustainable materials. But we start on the materials level. Um, we reduce our impact as much as, as possible there. Then we calculate that impact because there is still an impact. And then we offset that by supporting a carbon offsetting project, um, which is based in Kenya. Um, and then for every uniform or for every child that we sell a uniform to, we then provide a free uniform to a child in need. So we started doing that in Kenya, which is where I currently am, um, working with a school, um, which you guys actually had on uh, a couple of months ago, Karigi Primary School in Nairobi. Um, and ultimately, it's trying to trying to to build that connection between uh, us and particularly the younger generation and the clothes that we wear, so that hopefully as they grow up, they're more conscious consumers uh, and they support other brands like us. So they, you know, when they're policy makers and decision makers, that they make decisions from a, uh, a sustainable perspective. I definitely think that in the next six months, there's going to be a huge groundswell of opinion and and sort of uh, change around fast fashion and clothes. You can feel it's coming, but I don't think people have truly understood the cost of each garment from a sustainability point of view. The amount of water, for example, that's required to make a a pair of jeans is is staggering. Um, How quickly are schools cottoning on to... um, <laughs> Sorry, I had a moment, brief moment of pride then. Um, how uh, how quickly are schools cottoning on to the fact that parents are going to be demanding sustainable uniforms in the near future? They might not be doing it yet, but it, but I think yeah. it is going to come. Yeah. Well, how long's a piece of string? Um, that's uh, <laughs> just right back at you. But Yay. no, um, it's it's <laughs> it's gonna. I, I, I think you're completely right. There's going to be this groundswell. Um, but it's it's an interesting one, right? Because, you, as you said, these contracts are long-term contracts. So we might speak to a school that wants to make a change or we speak to someone within a school that wants to make a change, but then they might be in the contract for another another few years. Um, and and that's where it's it's difficult. I just feel like if you're at a point where you're able to to, to shift, then you've got to do it sustainably. Um, but there's so, it's, there's so many kind of issues to it, right? You've got the, the long-term contracts, you've got buyback clauses that uh, suppliers typically have within there as well, which is another deterrent from a school switching. Um, but it's, the, the, there is going to be a grand swell. I, I also feel that it's not just to do with the actual sustainability of the material. It's to do with where are these uh, uniforms being made um, because there's no transparency on that. So are suppliers using uh, certified audited factories? No, in most cases. Um, are people being paid fairly to actually manufacture the uniforms? Again, I'd say no. Um, and then when you look at the material as well, one of the symptoms of having these cheap synthetic fibres 
is the health implications and the uh, the chemicals that are in these uniforms. Um, you know, when I started Capes, we did some mystery shopping. We took some uniforms. We tested them for uh, uh, what's an azo dye, a banned azo dye, which is a substance used to, to dye uniforms. And a number of them came back positive for those tests. So there's a lot of issues. I think the health one is going to be one that, that comes up as well and certainly one that we're going to be talking about because I feel that if you're going to force people to to buy uniforms, uh, regardless of the price, but particularly when it when it costs quite a lot, then at the very least, they should be safe to wear. Mm. Um, the people making them should be paid fairly um, and uh, they shouldn't do unwarranted damage to the environment. Absolutely fascinating topic. Who would have thought there would be so much depth to the subject of uniforms and so much uh, passion on the text lines? Uh, Matthew Benjamin, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, Founder and CEO of Capes. Now they make uniforms based on sustainable materials. Lots of messages coming in, Z. Lots of messages. Yes, I don't know which ones to do first. Um, Don't name a brand. Yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna. <laughs> Christina says, I do too. When you said you were fuming, Georgia, paying an arm and a leg for FS and primary, primary like they're attending university, uniforms should be provided by the schools. Another one saying, also sustainability issue, as Matthew pointed out, we should be limiting the amount of clothes we purchase. Another one saying uniforms are not... Uh, needed. It is old-fashioned, to be honest. We don't wear uniforms in Europe. Interesting, Arno saying that. Now, I actually, I'm pro-uniform. I'm a huge supporter of it, mainly because I went to a senior school where there weren't uniforms and you could really tell the well-off kids because they all came into school wearing cool clothes and, you know, those of us who couldn't go out and spend a fortune on clothes kind of felt, you know, a little bit self-conscious about what we were wearing. So I'm a big supporter of uniforms. I just don't think they should be as expensive. And I think that, I think that you should be able to rely on those high streets, ultimately. You know, you go in the UK, you've got the companies like Marks and Spencers or John Lewis, all the supermarkets in the UK just sell great quality for literally a quarter of the price. And and someone's actually written in uh, raising that point. uh, And and I couldn't literally couldn't agree more. It's very, very strange. Uh, We're going to talk about quality in just a few minutes time. Thank you, everyone, who sent in messages. Uh, we, We feel you. I mean, Zena and I are equally furious about the amount that we're spending on uniforms and, and the fact that the quality is so bad. Uh, one, Siba, thank you very much for your message saying um, that a, a certain brand of schools uh, have awful quality in terms of material and fit and they seem to change uniforms every couple of years. That's unfair and ethical and a complete rip-off. What bothers me the most is that parents don't complain. They just do as they're told. Well, maybe it's time we stopped. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Right, welcome back to the programme. Such an interesting conversation about the role of schools in corporate social responsibility. We're also having a fascinating conversation right now about the cost of uniforms. Fair to say that we have touched a slight nerve when it comes to the cost of uniforms. Uh, People are pretty furious about the cost of it. Uh, Jennifer's got in touch saying it's not only the monetary cost, but the cost to the environment as well. Why isn't a return and reuse option the norm for uniforms? Marjolene says three for good here in Dubai are a great charity for children or students to get involved with not only collecting pre-owned clothes but they can also work in the two shops that they have they can volunteer Nish says great topic on uniforms I'm actually driving to a uniform store to buy another pair for my kids my sister-in-law have been ranting to each other about uniform prices and we're considering complaining to the KHDA maybe um, the KHDA should be the body to interfere on the uniform pricing and that exclusivity uh, and also maybe have a word about the quality. You might be right. We can get in touch with the KHDA and ask them whether that is something that they're concentrating on. Uh, but yes, fair to say that lots of people are complaining about not just the cost, but also the quality. We'll be coming back to that topic in just a few minutes. But it is time now for us to travel, virtually at least, because Sol Tonansin, who is a teacher 
um, at the Jungle School in Pachamama Eco Village in Costa Rica. Is going to be joining us in just a few minutes' time. Uh, she is a multi-grade, a multi-age grade teacher, and she is going to be the feature of our My Classroom segment, which we do every single week at this time. Uh, and essentially, the idea is that we travel as far afield and as far flung and to an unusual school to find out about what life is like in the classroom there. And I'm delighted to say that Sol has joined me on Microsoft Teams now. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you, Georgia? I am very well indeed, and it is really lovely to have you join us. Thank you very much indeed. Will you tell us a little bit about the Jungle School at Pachamama Eco Village in Costa Rica? What does it look like and where is it? I mean, the the hint is in the name, I guess. It's in the jungle. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Pachamama Eco Village, it's a transformative center in Costa Rica and the school is quite a small school. We have 30 students in total. We have a small toddler group with five students. Then we have preschool with seven students. And then we have a multi-age first to third and then third, third to fifth grade together joined in the classrooms. They are open classrooms, some of them, with a view to a laguna. And every day we take the children out for jungle walks and we do our learning process also inside and outside. Wow. So you really do get, the children really do get to experience the environment they're learning in. Yes, very much. We At the Eco Village, we have different centers. We have a recycling center, we have an ecology center, and we have a kitchen. And so the children get to experience all these different modalities within the community. We go, we have a a motto that it's learning through heart, hand, and head. So first we would introduce any kind of concept through the heart. We do a poem or a story. And after that, we would go and experience it with our hands. So we would go out into the field and do something practical with this knowledge story and then come back into the classroom and study about it. So I have um, been lucky enough a long time ago, like back in 2008, I was lucky enough to go to Costa Rica. So I have a sense of what it's like, the, uh, the ecosystem, the environment, uh, the, the, the green, the colours, the amount of wildlife. Could you describe a little bit about what, it, what, what the sort of atmosphere of, of the environment around the school is like? It's very humid. We have... We're used to that here in Dubai. Very, 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 very green. We have a river down in the community. So there's always like a flow of water in the background. We can always hear the water. And there's wildlife, many bugs. Sometimes we come to the classrooms and there's like praying mantises or mon- there we also have howling monkeys every morning within our like morning circle at the school we can hear the, the howling monkeys and it's yeah it's quite wild around the environment. And so what is the the structure of the school day like? Because obviously here in the UAE, they tend to have assembly first, they sing the national anthem, you know, and then they're straight into a maths class sitting at their desks. How is your day structured at the jungle school? We have a morning circle that is like, it resembles an assembly. We have the whole grades together singing. We, We do a poetry reading and we do some singing. It's not a national anthem, but it's like a school anthem that we that we have. After that, we move into our individual groups. And within the classroom, we have, we have another, we had like a rhythmic circle, we call it, in which we do clapping games or like different kind of rhythmic games for the children to like awake their brain hemispheres. And after that, we would sit down in the classroom and have, we have, we call it main lesson. And it's around an hour and 45 minutes where we would where we sit and we teach what are the topic of the of that block after that we go for a snack it's a like 15 minutes or like light lunch light bre- light breakfast children have recess after that and then we go to like the arts arts blocks we have an hour another hour and a half in which the children have different art specialty classes, either music or clay or painting. 
and then they, we have lunch, like a, like a heavier lunch, and at the end of the day we have reading class, and it we mix the groups again. So maybe sometimes like the older students read something to the younger ones, or yeah, we we mix it up a little bit. And I mean, it really does sound quite unusual the way you structure the curriculum. Are the children from in the international community or are they local Costa Ricans? They're mostly from the international community, also because the eco-village has many international parents coming. We have a we have quite a small full-time group of children, of parents that live at the eco-village. And they're all international. Like some of the children have been born in Costa Rica, but all of their parents are from different nationalities. And then we have a strong visiting children program. So because of like the nature of the eco village, lots of people come and go throughout the year. So in, at school, we accept children that come for a month or longer to come join our school program. So it's also very fluctuating the way we have like the number of students we can have in a classroom. And so uh, I, I guess that because there's such a sort of moving community, uh, the school must play a large role in the with you know within within that community because you you know you're a key component. How how does that interaction take place? It it does play a key role in a way. Um, it's also quite separated, I think, because of like because of the nature of the community. It's a transformative center, so people come to do a lot of self-work and like inner inner work and we try to like it, it can we try to not involve the children so much in that however we do have many musical events and in that the children are much part of it and every year we have a school play that's quite big and everybody in the community comes and supports it and also every once in a while you know like different different members of the community that have especially art classes to offer. They give something for the school. We're losing the line ever so slightly, but I'm just going to ask you one more question, which is uh, the role of sort of sustainability uh, within the school. Uh, I've, I've seen various details on the website about how, how green the school is. Is that, is that a key sort of part of your mission? Yes, it is a key value. One of the most important pillars we have as a school is to raise our children in a way that they are aware of the importance of sustainability and just eco-education eco in a way. I'm afraid we are losing your line. I'm so sorry because it's so fascinating to hear about the way the classroom uh, works. But I think I'm going to have to let the line go. Sol, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, that was Sol Tonantzin, uh, who is a multi-grade teacher at the Jungle School at Pachamama Eco Village in Costa Rica. I've just been looking at the pictures of the school. It is absolutely amazing how the children learn in literally in the jungle, uh, surrounded by an incredibly sort of green tropical landscape. So well worth imagining what it would be like to send your children there. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. And that's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.